Uh, Please keep your Bibles open to page 1093 of the Black Church Bibles. And we're at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 through to 21, as we conclude our weeks uh, studying 1 Timothy, this great letter of Paul to the young pastor Timothy in Ephesus, uh, as we've been seeking to learn what it means to fight for truth, inspired by the grace of God, empowered by God's Holy Spirit. In light of God's empowering Holy Spirit, would you join me now as we pray and ask God to help us understand this part of his word and that he would use it to change us to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, do quiet our minds now as we come to your word. Please help us to treat your word with the respect that it deserves and remind us that we are listening to you, the God who alone is immortal, who alone dwells in unapproachable light, who alone deserves all glory, honour and power. Remind us today of who you are and of the life you hold out to us in the gospel of Jesus, so that we may take hold of the life that is real life and not be deceived by false imitations. We ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. If I was to ask you, what do people who live in Australia live for, what would you answer? To put it another way, what is Australia's idol? What is Australia's great distraction? What do people live for, work for, want above all else? What do people in Australia who live here make the most sacrifices for in this life? I think it's comfort. Comfort. That which makes me comfortable is often at someone else's expense, even the expense of their comfort. I'll go to this event and not to that event on the basis of what is comfortable. I'll we'll dress for comfort. We'll talk to this person because we're comfortable in doing it. We'll move or extend or build so we'll feel more comfortable. We'll refurbish our houses or apartments so we'll be a little more comfortable. Yet as a society, we lack contentment. We don't know what it means. We don't know how to find it. We'll work our guts out trying to achieve it and we'll wonder why it slipped through our fingers or it's escaped us. Some people look for contentment in imbibing, injecting or smoking. Some look for it by ensuring that other people like us or kind of think we're cool. Some look for it by travelling, by putting off responsibility, by staying home as long as possible, by playing around sexually. Some seek it by assuring they get a high mark in year 12, get into the best university, study the best degree, get the best job to follow the best career path that pays the most money, so one day we'll be comfortable. Some do it by doing the bare minimum, by surfing heaps, taking all they can get from Centrelink so that they might be comfortable. What do Australian people, people who live in Australia, live for? They live for comfort. What do you live for? Christian brother or sister, what do you live for? Is it any different to the rest of Australia? Contrast what you might live for and what the rest of Australia might live for with what Paul says in his letter to Timothy in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. For we brought nothing into the world... We can take nothing out, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. With that in mind, let's get into our text tonight in chapter 6. 
1 Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 6 work like bookends for the letter of 1 Timothy. They share a number of similarities, yet some significant differences. Better the comparison may be with stereo speakers. You know, you can listen to either speaker and it's recognisable that they are playing the same tune, but there are variations perhaps in the instruments that appear in each or the amount of bass or the level of vocals that are coming through. But together they enrich the song, they enrich the experience. And that's the way chapters 1 and 6 function together, I suspect. It's a pity that we never really read them together or read the whole letter in one sitting to get that feel for the similarities and the differences, to help us grasp its significance. Because as we turn to chapter 6, we really are looking at the same people that we noted in chapter 1. These are false teachers. Again, we're looking at people who are teaching other doctrine apart from the healthy, vital teaching of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, these people who are conceited, full of their own importance as teachers. Those people who had shipwrecked their faith in chapter 1, we now find in chapter 6 are sinking into oblivion of ruin and destruction. And in verses 4 and 5, it becomes apparent that Paul has the same kind of objection that he had back in chapter 1. The crux of his complaint, his criticism of these false teachers, the reason why their activity is so dangerous is because it's having a real, genuine impact on the lives of Christians in the congregation at Ephesus. They're preoccupied with the controversial. They're preoccupied with empty arguments about words. Their impact is leading to envy and division and quarrelling and slander and evil suspicions. Those things which simply do not secure the goal of Christian ministry. The goal of love sincere faith and a good conscience that we see in chapter 1. So there's similarities, many things that are similar, words and themes, but there is a significant difference because when we get to the end of verse 5 of chapter 6, a different issue emerges and it's this issue which drives Paul and emerges and is established and drawn out for the rest of the letter. You see, chapter 1 was all about the law. These false teachers desired to be experts in the law. Paul had to deal with their failure to appreciate the inherent limitations of the law. But in chapter 6, the theme shifts to wealth, riches, financial gain and profit. In verse 9, we're told that these false teachers want to be rich, yet they don't recognise the inherent limitations of material gain or financial profit. And In fact, if you read carefully, these people don't actually believe the gospel. Their interest in the Christian faith, in godliness, is the profit they can make from it in this age. The only value they can see in godliness ultimately is what they can get from it in this life. And so as Paul did in chapter 1 about the law, in chapter 6 he addresses the limitations this time of wealth, of material gain. And he does it by establishing the inherent limitations of wealth by drawing a contrast Underlying the rest of this letter and this chapter will be a contrast between two ages. The now, this age, this sphere of existence that we live in, in contrast with the age that has begun to break in with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. An age that will be made plain and visible at the appearance of Jesus Christ in God's good timing. You see, it's the failure of these people to believe in two ages, these two ages, 
and the vital distinction between them that leads to a tragic, a seriously tragic conclusion about the importance of financial gain, wealth and profit. And to establish the limitation, Paul mounts three really excellent arguments. And the first of the three arguments is just simple arithmetic. Paul mounts a brilliant knockdown argument in verses 7 and 8. I mean, really, he could just stop there, put the quill down and send the letter away and go and have some supper. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. I wonder if you'd try this simple quiz with me. I want you to close your eyes and for a moment or two, imagine there are two tables in front of you. Table A and table B. Two tables in front of you. I want you to run back through your life. Press the rewind button on your life and go back to that moment when you first came into the world, when you were born. Okay, press the rewind button. For some of us, it will be more like a... For others, it will be like a... Okay? You're back to the moment when you came into the world. Onto table A. At that point, I want you to now place everything of value, every material possession, every bit of wealth that you brought into the world when you were born, put that onto table A. You've done that? It's on the table? Anyone got anything on table A? Now, having done that, press the fast forward button. For some, it's. Others, it's. Okay. Now, go to your funeral. Do the same thing at your funeral. Put everything onto table B that will be dear to you for where you are going next. Every material possession, every scrap of wealth, everything that will be of value to you in the next life, put that onto table B. What do you get when you subtract table A from table B? What you get is the net financial material gain from your whole earthly existence. Nothing from nothing is nothing. Have you got that? And Paul reasons in the light of that. Using arguments actually that contemporary Greek philosophers of the time would agree with. He argues that in light of that, it's just a question of contentment. It's more to life. If we have enough to survive, if we've got enough to live, that can't be the point of life, can it? Really, all you need is enough to get by in terms of material possessions, in terms of clothing and food. There can't be too much more to it. Life, real life, must lie somewhere beyond that. The real secret to what's worth living for, to what's worth working for, must be somewhere else. And so Paul moves to the second argument in verses 9 and 10. From simple arithmetic, Paul now turns to the tragic outcomes he sees in people's lives who see wealth as the be-all and the end-all. Who thought that financial gain, material possessions must be the goal of life and therefore spent their whole life chasing after them. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It's here that Paul points to the lives 
of people who have, who's been, whose lives have been destroyed or made miserable by the temptations that have come from the desire to be rich. In the minute I kind of came across these words afresh, I, my mind immediately began to run to figures like Alan Bond, a contemporary example like Gina Reinhardt. With all the money that she has, her family is just disintegrating around her. I think of the suburb, I did, I thought of the suburb of Molsman, which according to recent statistics, the combined income of the residents who live in the suburb of Molsman is equivalent to that of 20 entire suburbs around the area of Liverpool in southwestern Sydney. Staggering concentration of wealth. Alan Bond, Gina Reinhardt, the residents of Mosman, it also turned to those businessmen and women who tragically from time to time take their own lives because of the declines in the stock market. But what's confronting is that Paul seems to be thinking here about Christian people. Not just people out there, but Christian people. Or people who had once claimed to follow Jesus Christ. Yes, less spectacular in some ways, not about to make the front cover of the Sydney Morning Herald or the Woman's Day or on the news at night. But for the Apostle, profoundly more tragic. Here are people who've wandered away from the faith, wandered away from Jesus, wandered away from the one person who could have secured their future, the one person who could have given them life, eternal life, the life that really is life. Instead, these people have become like dead flies caught in a Venus flytrap. They've been ensnared, sucked in, lured, and now they're trapped, caught up in the terrible situation that will only lead to their destruction and to their ruin. One of the images that Paul uses In the end, at verse 10 here, is the idea that they've been pierced with many griefs and pains. The imagery is like a javelin plunging through someone's innards and tearing them to pieces. In their desire to be wealthy, in falling over themselves to get more and more, they have in fact plunged a javelin through the very heart of their life and they're left with nothing but ruin, destruction. This too, I find, a very compelling and powerful argument. But I suspect the third argument is what really lies at the heart of what Paul is saying in this chapter. And it comes in verses 13 and 14. In some ways, it's not much more than an aside in the text. But what we will find is that yet again, Jesus Christ is the key to what Paul is saying. It's Jesus that ultimately highlights the inherent limitation of material wealth and material gain. The whole perspective and the whole value system that Paul is developing, he gets in this strange and oblique way from Jesus. He highlights for us the joy of knowing Jesus, the real life and hope that comes from knowing Jesus. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. In the presence of God who gives life to all, And of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep the command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God will bring about in his own time. In these verses, Paul urges Timothy to make the same good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. 
Now, what's he referring to there? Well, if you go back to John chapter 18 and verses 35 and 36, that's about the best I can do. There you have Jesus standing before Pilate. Verse 36 really is the key verse. It's here where Pilate is really giving Jesus his last chance to back down, to recant, to choose life, this life. And yet Jesus makes it clear that the life that's on offer, if he was to back down, if he was to apologise unreservedly, do whatever to get off the hook, he actually says to Pilate, no, there's something more valuable. There's life that's more important, says Jesus. There's a kingdom that I'm living for that's not tied to this world, this sphere of existence that's so much more precious to Jesus. He says to Pilate, chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. For as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You see, Jesus isn't living for this sphere of existence. Jesus didn't choose this life, its safety, its security, comfort, the here and now. Jesus was willing to go to his death for the sake of the kingdom that he would establish, the kingdom that is coming, the future that lies at the, as the culmination of God's glorious great purposes in the world. And so Paul exhorts Timothy to make the same choice. He charges Timothy Make the same good confession to choose not this life, this age, but to choose the new age, the life to come. Not the now, but that which is about to be. So he urges Timothy in verses 11 through 14 to fight the good fight. Just like he did in chapter 1, only this time with a different verb. Strikingly, it's the same verb that Jesus used in John 18 about his disciples not fighting to keep him in this world. Same verb is picked up by Paul as he urges Timothy to fight the good fight for the real life. Verse 11. But you, man of God, run from these things And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the faith. Take hold of eternal life that you were called to and have made a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. He pleads with Timothy. Don't fall for the trap. Don't be a sucker. Don't choose material wealth and riches. Instead, invest your whole life into the coming kingdom. Invest where it really counts, where it really will yield dividends. That's what Paul is urging Timothy to do and urging us to do. Timothy's struggle is not with weapons. It isn't with arguments or controversies. His struggle is to take hold of the gift of eternal life to constantly choose the age to come with its priorities rather than this life, this age and its priorities, to daily choose to invest his life, to make his choices, to choose his priorities so as to bear fruit in the age to come rather than laying up for his own security, his own comfort, his own wealth now and in this here and here. See, that's the challenge that's put to Timothy. And it's the challenge today that's put to us. Because Timothy will say, Timothy, you've got a challenge there amongst the Christians at Ephesus. Now check out verses 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in the present age 
not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Where are they to put their hope? Where do they set their attention? On God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves in this world? No, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. Timothy, on the basis of believing this yourself, on adopting this radical perspective of what really counts and what really is life, go then and convince the people in the congregation at Ephesus of this same radical perspective. And particularly, Paul says, to encourage, exhort those who are most vulnerable to the seduction of wealth, namely those that have it. And so in verse 17, Timothy is given a new task. You see, these people face very, very, very strong and difficult temptation. They're tempted by that sort of false security that comes by owning a comfortable home, by having money to spare, from having a varied portfolio of investments, the kids in a good private school, a couple of nice cars in the garage and all the rest. These people, like you and I, face the same temptation with our wealth. The false security and confidence that leads to haughtiness, but in the end displaces and replaces God, such that our hope is no longer in him. We're not looking to him to secure our future. We're not safe and secure in the knowledge that God himself will provide us with every good thing. No. Instead, we're trusting in our investment strategies. We're putting our energies and our time and our money into securing our own future through wealth and possessions. We end up working two jobs, or for some of us, working one job as if it demanded the hours of two, worshipping our house as if it was some massive idol. The choices we make, the policies we take, all the rest, it so easily moves beyond prudent and wise provision for our families and ourselves and moves to becoming a false god, an idol, taking away our hope from God who actually can secure our future. So what should Timothy tell these people? Well, Timothy is an investment, an investment advisor. He should go to them and say, Don't invest in this life. Invest in the life that really is life. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. See that all your possessions are the gracious gift of a gracious God. Everything God has given you, he's given you to enjoy, but not for it to become your idol and to become your security or the focus of your life and the focus of all your energies. He's given you stuff so that you can share it and give stuff away. To invest into people, to invest into gospel ministry and in the age to come, however that opportunity may under God be presented to you. These are strong words. They're very current and relevant words, I would suggest, for our culture and for the Christian people that we mix with. See, I could regale you with story after story, tragic and terrible stories of friends of mine who fit this profile too well. 
People counted as dear brothers and sisters who were lured into trading their birthright for a single meal, some for financial gain, some for a non-Christian relationship, some for recognition, some for sexual freedom. You may know some people as well. People who are no longer followers of Jesus Christ. Lured by a heady mixture of all of those things, perhaps. Ministers who stopped believing the gospel years ago, who press on now without any heart for God's people, without any commitment to the truth, just wanting to draw a stipend and secure their super. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are engaged in a fight, constant fight. A constant struggle is ahead for each one of us as we battle against these things. You will constantly, inevitably, daily be faced with the choice. The choice of whether you're going to invest in the age to come or invest your life in everything you have in this age. To live for the praise of God or for the praise of people. To live for my glory, honour and riches or to live for God's glory, honour and praise. We are daily surrounded and bombarded by the pervasive value system of our culture and the seductive messages that come from the newspapers, the magazines, the television, the internet, Facebook, the radio, from friends on Facebook, from real friends, from family, from everybody and every angle that keep insisting that securing the future is through hard work, prudent investments, investments, best interest rates, home ownership, home extensions. Friends, if you adopt this radical perspective that the best is yet to come, that the age to come is where I'm going to invest, there are going to be times when you are at dinner parties and the discussion turns to investments and you will feel like the definitive loser. There'll be perhaps times when you look at your children and you'll feel like a very poor provider. There'll be times when you look forward to your retirement and you'll wonder if you can afford to be one of the lucky, strong ones who can make it to a ripe old age. You may feel it when an opportunity for overseas mission arises and you'll really have to think about the lifestyle involved. You feel it when you sit down to work out the family budget and decide how much you're able to give or willing to give to the local church and to the work of the gospel around the world. Time and time and time and time again, You'll need to come back to the gospel, back to Jesus, to get the clarity, to get the commitment, to get the courage, to get the fortitude, to get the perspective, to fight this fight. What is it? What does Jesus' future appearing mean for life and how you value and measure your life and what you live for? It means that the coming kingdom, isn't it? It means that the coming kingdom is where it's really at. What choice did Jesus make when he was confronted by the same choice that we face? Jesus chose the age to come. Even though it meant his death on the cross, he chose us rather than his own life, his own safety, his own security, his own comfort. So what's the best investment you can possibly make with your time, your gifts, your wealth, your life. 
Verse 11. But you, man or woman of God, run from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the faith. Take hold of eternal life that you were called to and have made a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do help us in the power of your Spirit and inspired by the grace you've shown to us. Help us to be men and women, your people, who daily make the choice not to live for this age, but to live for the age to come. Father, we thank you that Jesus has prepared the way for us to be in that age, that he's the first fruits of the new creation. Father, help us day after day, to keep choosing Jesus. And Father, may we look to him and in him find the courage, the conviction, the perspective that will help us to be men and women who live wisely in this age, in light of the age to come. Father, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.